This is sort of like uh, emptying the Atlantic with a spoon. Uh, so I'm, I'm only going to be superficial, which is what I do best anyway. Uh, shallow, superficial is usually what my wife uh, calls me. And uh, I thought of, you know, how do you summarize uh, Reformed theology? And I thought of uh, four things. Usually it comes in fives, but I thought of four, th- four ways of summarizing it. If you want to take notes, you don't have to, but if you want to take notes, it'll be four things. But first of all, just to introduce it, for those of you who, who haven't even heard the term Reformed theology, I'm assuming most of you have, but if you haven't, comes out of the Reformation. It was a Reformation, not a revolution. Martin Luther, John Calvin, and other Reformers didn't want to start a new church. They wanted to reform the Catholic Church. And so when we talk about the Reformed tradition, we're talking about you know, sister, our sister traditions are the Lutheran tradition, the Anglican tradition, the, 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 the German and uh, English reformations. And ours is more associated with John Calvin, John Knox, uh, and other reformers in the past. And now most reformed and Presbyterian Christians live in the global south. There are more reformed Christians living in Nigeria than North America. So it's really exciting to see the globalization of uh, this expression of the faith. And it, it's, it's really part of the Catholic Church. The best way of thinking of the, the re- Reformed tradition, I think, is it is, in my view, the most biblically faithful interpretation of the Bible as understood by the ecumenical creeds. Uh, so it's not an alternative to the Catholic faith it is the Reformed Catholic faith, uh, not the only one. Uh, we, we're not going to be surprised to see uh, all sorts of other uh, people in heaven who aren't Reformed. Uh, but, but in my view, uh, our confessions faithfully reflect the teaching of Scripture as summarized in the ecumenical creeds. And so how would I go about uh, summarizing such a massive tradition. The first thing I would say is that Reformed theology is world-affirming, world-affirming and world-embracing. Um, you know, there are some, maybe you were even raised in a, in a background like I was, where we were just waiting for the whole thing to burn up. You know, the late great planet Earth, and you've been left behind. I see some nods. You know, just checking in the middle of the night to make sure that my parents hadn't been raptured and uh, I was left behind. Uh, when people, you know, said you were irrationally afraid of being left behind, it wasn't because my parents were bad parents. It was because of the theology I was raised with. Um, and it, one of the things that really stru- struck me about Reformed theology was how world-embracing it is. Instead of J.I. Packer, a Reformed theologian, has said that, that the, uh, one of the big differences between fundamentalism and Reformed theology is fundamentalism is, is fundamentally world-denying and Reformed theology is fundamentally world-embracing. Now, of course, there's a sense in which we're called to deny the world, to not become worldly, But that's different from sort of rejecting the world as such, the world as God created it, and the world in its fallenness, because we have to remember we're fallen too. So we shouldn't be surprised that the world is messy. 
<laughs> it's made up of us, and therefore we can't have a, a kind of us versus them uh, approach to the world. We uh, uh, have to realize that this is our Father's world. God created this world. Satan didn't create this world. Satan can't do anything original. Uh, the most uh, uh, you know, unoriginal, unartistic creature that ever lived. Uh, can't create anything. We're created in the image of God. We can be creative. Satan can't create a thing. All Satan can do is corrupt, corrode, mangle that which God created beautiful. And so our triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, created us out of love, not out of need, not out of lack, something missing in the fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but out of pure freedom and love created this world, something different from God, totally different from God, and yet taken into God's care as, um, as a wonderful creation. And in fact, the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1-2 is hovering over, hover, hovering over the creation even before it's all formed into its spheres and, 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 and shaped in an orderly way. And I love John Calvin's line, even in its disorder and confusion, the Holy Spirit was cherishing the confused mass. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? So God has never given up on this world. It will never be late great planet Earth. This is a world embracing faith. Uh, that's seen in the resurrection of the body. You know, what happens at the end? We don't believe that, that salvation ultimately is going to heaven when we die, our soul leaving our body. We're glad that <laughs> as our body decays, uh, that's not the end of us. Uh, we, our soul is in the immediate presence of the Lord, but our ultimate salvation is not our disembodied existence. It is the resurrection of the body in the world to come. So it's a, it, it, it's a very world-affirming, world-embracing, matter-supportive uh, faith. As C.S. Lewis said, God likes the idea of matter. He invented it. Um, so it's not something we should run from. But the world has fallen. So when we talk about the sinfulness of the world, its corruption, its distortion, we're talking about good stuff mangled, twisted. Uh, we're talking about love twisted into lust. We're talking about good, good gifts of God being turned into idols. We're talking about... Uh, um, Good friendships uh, being uh, opportunities for, for dominance of one over the other. We're talking about uh, trust uh, in relationships turning into uh, terrible uh, uh, disputes between friends and even dividing families. And uh, just the, the, the tragedy of sin, both as a condition and as actions. Now, again, in a lot of churches that some of us at least grew up in, sin is understood as something you do, bad things you do. But Reformed theology emphasizes with Scripture that sin is, first of all, something we are. It's just a part of who we are since the fall. Uh, that we are corrupt in Adam and we're guilty in Adam. 
And even from the womb, <laughs> I mean, that's the hard part. Beautiful little child, how can you possibly say that that child is, is, uh, innocent, is, is not innocent? Um, well, first of all, those of you who are parents have less trouble believing in original sin <laughs> than the younger ones who haven't had children yet. I, don't, I identify with that doctrine. I get it. Um, coming out of the womb, straying. It's hard for us to think, because we tend to think, especially in this culture, that nurture determines everything. You know, that it's how they're taught. It's, it's the environment they live in. It's the society. But, but Scripture reminds us that the, you know, the heart is desperately wicked. It's not just the things that happen on the outside, Jesus says. It's what comes from the heart that corrupts. Uh, we're, we're corrupt from the inside out. It's a hard doctrine. This is one of the hardest doctrines. But you know you're in the territory of truth when it hurts. <laughs> when you're not just babbling the same nonsense to yourself day after day about what you already believe. That's all good, all happy, you know. If your religion is all happy, it's probably not connecting with reality. How do you know that? Well, you know that when you're... you're your mom or dad dies. And then after that, when things start going wrong in your own, your own health or your own life, your, your friends get cancer, you start seeing life as it hits hard. Then you start thinking, I need a theology that can handle this. And this is a theology that can handle it. Can't explain it, but can handle it. Can handle you and me, even with our questioning um, in the middle of it all. It's Christ exalting. I've got to pick up some speed here. Christ exalting. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Now, again, in a lot of churches, we, I, I, I assume by all the nods, there are, there are several people who, who know what I'm talking about here. Even cons- from conservative to liberal churches, uh, churches that take the Bible seriously to churches that really don't take it all that seriously, tragically, what you often get are Bible stories about how you can be a better you, you know, uh, with God's help. Uh, if you just follow these five tips or these five principles for better living uh, or how to have a better marriage or, you know, so you, you read the Old Testament, what are you going to do with those, those passages? Dare to be a Daniel, you know. Uh, wouldn't you like to be a leader like Joshua? Joshua was a great leader. What can we get out of the stories of, of Joshua? Well, great moral tips on how to be a great leader. Now, it's not that you can't find stuff like that, but like, don't. Who wants their kid to, to grow up and be like David? You know, a man after God's own heart. Yeah, and also a, adulterer, murderer, a few other things that you kind of would not want your children to imitate. So the Bible clearly is not a book of, of Bible heroes to imitate. Then what is it? It's a book about the one hero, God. And, and that finally, one day, in a little town of Bethlehem, that God assumed flesh for us and for our salvation. And the whole Bible is about that story. Jesus says to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures thinking you have life in them, not realizing that it's they that testify concerning me. 
but you will not come to me in order to have life. Uh, he also said after his, resurrect, after his resurrection, uh, his dejected disciples didn't understand why he was, uh, 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 didn't know anything about this person who had been raised from the dead. And of course, Jesus, Jesus would, we're told, kept them from recognizing him as, as the risen one. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them how everything in the scriptures was about him. And they replied, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened up the scriptures to us? And that's what I understand. I've already heard this morning and I've heard before. What, what I understand happens here on Sunday, <laughs> uh, week in, week out. When you're, am I right? When you hear a sermon that you could, you could, you could get out of, uh, you know, the uh, New York Times magazine or something that you could, you could uh, hear on uh, a daytime talk show from Dr. Phil versus hearing Christ as if he's standing before you telling him how the whole Bible is about him, how this passage is about him. Which would you show up for? Which is worth getting dressed for, coming to church? The whole Bible is about him, and that's how the apostles preach these Old Testament passages. It's all about Christ. Uh, his incarnation, that means his becoming flesh, his becoming human, uh, while remaining fully God. His act of obedience, that he fulfilled the law in our place. It was a big deal to me. I always believed, I guess, in forgiveness. We heard a lot about Jesus dying on the cross to forgive us our sins. But I'd never heard growing up about the act of obedience of Christ. That Christ, in his perfect obedience to the law, actually fulfilled all righteousness in my place. So it's not just that I'm forgiven just as if I'd never sinned. But I'm declared righteous, positively. I'm treated as if I had completely done everything that the law required me to do throughout my whole life. Is that stunning? Just, just let that sit and bake for, for just a moment. That God views you right now in all your messiness and all your sin. Not just messiness, but outright offense against him. Uh, you come repentant and you trust in Jesus Christ. He sees you not only as forgiven. He sees you as if you not only have never committed any sin, but as if you had perfectly already fulfilled the law because Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to your account. Is that amazing? I mean, that's, and that's the banking language that that Paul uses, for example, in Romans. He is credited to our account. We have all these, all these debts, and he not only has removed the debts, he has filled our account with his own perfect righteousness. And, and what's the first thing you want to do? Go out and uh, uh, party your lights out and uh, thumb your nose at God for all that he's done? No, the first thing you want to do is show your gratitude and go out and, and uh, uh, display the wonders of his mercy that called you from, your, from darkness into his marvelous light. But it's a promise-driven, gospel-driven life, not a fear-driven, uh, command-driven life. 
God's law directs us, but it cannot empower us. Only God's promises in Christ can empower us for daily living and for faithful witness. And so we are, we're regenerated. That means that we are dead in sin and yet made alive in Jesus Christ. How much do we contribute to our salvation? Well, how much does a dead person contribute to resurrection? Ask Lazarus how much he contributed to his resurrection. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And his powerful word created the reality of which he spoke. It's like, let there be light, and there was light. When God declares something to be, it is. And here we are dead in trespasses and sins. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, while you were dead, he made you alive with Christ. By grace you are saved. Another wonderful, amazing truth. It wasn't because I chose him, but because he chose me before the foundation of the world. It wasn't because I'm clinging to him, but because he's clinging to me. It wasn't because I had faith in him, but because he gave faith to me to, to, to cling to him. It wasn't because I said yes to him, but because he said yes to me. Jesus said to his, to his disciples in John 15, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that would last. Wow. He appointed, he chose me and he appointed me to go bear fruit that would last, that I'll never be unchosen. Isn't that wonderful, the comfort and confidence that that is? For, now, he says, go love each other. Not go love each other, then you'll be chosen. But here's who you are in Christ. Now, go live like that. Adop we're adopted. We're, we, are, we are sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ of his entire estate. We're sanctified. We're, we're, we're being sanctified. We're gradually being renewed, conformed to the image of Christ. Isn't that shocking? Amazing? See, Jesus is the last Adam who actually fulfilled the purpose that Adam was made for and we were made for. He fulfilled it. And now we are gradually being conformed to that image day by day. What a wonderful thing to think about as we you know, sometimes feel like it's another day, another boring day, going to the office, doing the same thing. <laughs> at home with the kids, whatever, it's just like a normal... But it's one more day of resting in the justification you have in Christ and growing in the sanctification that you're being given. Riches, just, you know, enjoying the riches of God's grace. And then the means of grace, world-embracing, Christ-exalting, grace-affirming, uh, there are also the means of grace, not only the gifts of grace, regeneration, election, adoption, sanctification, one day glorification, but the means of grace. Um, there's that great picture that I love so much. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it, Times Square, World War II, uh, Victory in Europe picture where you have the, uh, the uh, uh, Navy uh, officer, uh, a sailor picking up a stranger on the street, a woman, and swinging her around in Times Square. What an amazing picture that is of going to church. <laughs> News that is big enough, an announcement that is big enough and good enough, is enough to draw total strangers out of their little private holes, out into the public, 
to embrace each other because they are receivers of a common word. They're hearers, made hearers together of a word that gives them an identity that is, that is deeper, harder, sharper, richer than any identity they have in this world. They bring all of their differences, all of their diversity with them in that. But more than anything, they are now those who have heard that message, who have been gospeled into the kingdom of God. And so that we come because God delivers his goods. In Romans 10, Paul says, you don't have to go up, climb up to heaven to pull Christ down or go into the depths as if to pull Christ up from the dead. You know, a lot of people want to do that. We do that individually. But if I just do this, I know that Jesus will be big in my life again. Uh, or I know that if, if, if our church can just get cool enough, we will whirl Jesus out of heaven onto our stage. If we can just do enough things, personally, privately, or as a church, to bring him down or to, to, to go into the depths to bring him up again, it'll be exciting again. And Paul says, no, 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 don't you realize he's as near as the word of grace that I'm preaching right now, the word of Christ. Christ himself is present when his word is preached. Christ himself is present in baptism. Christ himself is present and active in the Lord's Supper. And we, we believe this. This is not just remembering what God said once upon a time. God is saying something through his word, not apart from it, but in his word, he is talking to you now. Christ is talking to you when the word is preached. And he's, he, he is acting in baptism. Say, well, pastor so-and-so baptized me. No, actually, he was just a hand. Uh, Christ baptized you. He was there. Christ baptized you into himself. And in the Lord's Supper, Paul says, this bread that we break, is it not a participation, a sharing in the body of Christ? And this cup that we bless, it is, is it not a sharing in, a fellowship with the blood of Christ? So stuff is happening now. We don't have to go get him and, and bring him down and make him relevant. Through word and sacrament, he comes to us. Isn't it amazing? Not only did he come to us 2,000 years ago because we couldn't take the first step to him, he comes to us now because we are dead in sins and still can't take the first step to him. So he comes down, 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 down. And, and our native, natural, default setting is to run up. <laughs> like, you know, when I was a kid, I used to run up the down escalator, trying to beat it. And that's what we do in our Christian. God says, here, I'm coming down in human flesh, just like you, yet without sin. I'm going to save you. I'm coming down to save you. Just stay. <laughs> stay. Don't move. Don't try anything. I'm coming to save you. You're on the ledge. Just never mind. I'm coming to save you. And while he comes down, no, sure enough, sure enough, fidgeting, fidgeting, cry, climbing. Yeah. I'm going to make it. I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And we fall off the cliff. And that's, that's uh, you know, being rescued is a hard thing for, for, for us 
to do, to let ourselves be rescued. We, we, we like, we'll be helped. If somebody can help us achieve our dreams and our wishes and be a better me, I'll let them in, but not, not a God who says, I have to rescue you. You're helpless. That's hard. It's really hard, and it remains hard for us even as Christians. But that's why God keeps preaching it into us again and again and again. Now, again, Reformed theology can't claim to be, uh, you know, have a, have to own this real estate uh, of these doctrines. Um, this is common, the common fund of all Christians, but Reformed theology has especially wanted to highlight these things week after week. Finally, God glorifying. Um, it's a new society. It's the city of God. Now, it's still not what it will be one day. You know, the joke is, uh, what, to dwell above with the saints in love, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints I know, well, now that's another story. Um, you know, uh, it's sort of said with a, with a little bit of a grin, but... You know, we, we think, seriously, this is God's new society? Look how frail it is. Look how, well, yeah, look at Jesus. Look at how frail. At the moment, he was in the most dire straits as far as the world saw things. Hanging on a cross, he was actually triumphing over Satan. So don't look for God in the big things. Look for God in the humiliation of the cross. And that's where you'll find him. Uh, it gives us a new mission, the great commission of making disciples and the great commandment of loving and serving our neighbor. Those are distinct commissions, but we're called to, to fulfill both of them. And the way we will fulfill the great commission is especially by sending out people who will preach the gospel and administer the sacraments and oversee churches. In other words, planting churches uh, every day sharing of the gospel to your neighbors. But then in the great commandment to love our neighbors, the, the major way we fulfill that is through our callings, through our vocations, every, everyday callings that God has given us to serve alongside non-Christians, loving and serving them in ways that enrich their lives. And so the church is where disciples are made and the world is where discipleship goes. That's where we fulfill our calling. Some, someone asked uh, uh, Martin Luther, well, uh, what, what's going to happen now? People aren't going to feel like they need to live Christian lives because you've told them it's all of grace and, and so forth. And he says, uh, he says, no, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works. This is hard for us to get out of our head. God does not need your good works. In fact, he's going to be pretty upset if you try to offer your good works in exchange for something. God says, I do all the good works. I have done everything for you, and now I want to do something for your neighbor through you. I want to love and serve your neighbor now through you. And So if you want to work for somebody, work for them in my name and on my behalf. So what a, what a wonderful calling uh, we are given and how different it is from all of the messages that we hear out there, uh, out there in the world. I want to close with a, 
uh, a sort of snippet from uh, one of my favorite uh, Reformed theologians, Bono. Uh, he did, in an interview, uh, Mishka Asayas says, I think I'm beginning to understand religion because I've started acting and thinking like a father. What do you make of that? Bono says, yes, I think that's normal. It's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. See, let me pause there for a moment. In Galatians, Paul distinguishes between grace, which is more like good luck. (laughs) It happens to you when you were expecting something else. And karma that follows the law of cause and effect. You reap what you sow. And Paul makes that point. Why would you go back, having been freed by the gospel, why would you go back to the stoicheia tu theu, to cosmos, sorry, to the elementary principles of this world? And those elementary principles are the ABCs of cause and effect. It's karma. And I thought about that. I thought about Galatians when he said it. So move from the realm of karma into one of grace. And Isaiah says, well, that doesn't exactly make it clearer for me. He says, well, uh, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was finally going to be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. God says, look, you Cretan, there are certain rule results to the way we are, to selfishness. And there's a mortality as a part of your very sinful nature. And let's face it, you're not living a very good life, are you? There are consequences. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that What we put out did not come back to us. And that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. And Esaias says, that's a great idea. Wow, no denying that. Such great hope is wonderful, I guess, even though it's close to lunacy in my opinion. That's why the gospel's foolishness to those who are perishing. Because it just doesn't make any sense. But the great wonder of it all is that it's based on something that actually happened 2,000 years ago when God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. That certainty, that certainty anchors this promise that those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say then against the, uh, in, in the face of all these things, Paul says? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will lay anything against the charge of God's elect? For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will ever be able to separate us 
from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in Christ, the goodness that is in you and has been in your planning from even before the creation of the world. We thank you that you have sustained us even during difficult times and that you brought us here to this place where week in, week out, our hearts can burn within us as we hear our Savior proclaimed from Genesis to Revelation. Keep uh, making our hearts uh, hearts of flesh eager to hear and to, to grow in this message, to be firmly planted and rooted in your grace and your gospel, and then to live it out, uh, uh, live out the truth of your word and allow your commands to direct us each day. Um, help us, Father, to uh, grow more and more deeply in this faith so that we have a reason for the hope that is within us and can share that with those outside. Hear us for we pray in Christ's name. Amen.